From Muse by Clio and the Clio Awards, this is Tagline, the show about great ads and the people who make them. This week on Tagline. And now let's make that random call with today's $10,000 question. It's a tough one. Who shot Alexander Hamilton in that famous duel? He said, whatever rules exist in this category, don't take any notice because they don't work. Because everybody went, yes, you're right. Milk's good for you. Can I have a Diet Coke? I remember when I saw the first package of scripts that we actually produced, looking at them and thinking, these are like the best scripts I've ever seen. That was always the dream strategy, I think, for a creative person is to have permission to go to a darker place by showing what happens if you don't have the product. What you don't want to do is ruin somebody else's amazing campaign. (laughs) After the third time or so, Jeff was like, I think we're good. I was like, what? Not a single change? People were mad that we got to you know, stop stuffing brownies into people's faces for five minutes. And she said, I think it should be called Got Enough Milk, because that would be more exact. And I said, I don't think you need the enough part. Breaking through into pop culture is a kind of holy grail for advertisers, and few have done it quite as spectacularly as Got Milk, the campaign Goodby Silverstein and Partners launched for California's dairy processors back in 1993. With its great consumer insight, darkly comic creative, inspired partnerships, and iconic tagline, Got Milk quickly became a fixture in the cultural landscape of the 90s and early 2000s. On this episode of Tagline, we'll catch up with many of the folks who made the campaign happen. Jeff Manning and Jeff Goodby, whose client-agency relationship was one for the ages, the planner John Steele, producer Cindy Epps, and the creatives Eric Joyner, Scott Burns, Chuck McBride, and Harry Cocciolo, who made so many of the early spots. We'll also look at how the creative team of Blake Kelly and Amy Nicholson later took the campaign in new directions. And we'll catch up with Sean Whalen, the tragic protagonist from the Michael Bay-directed launch spot, Aaron Burr. I'm Tim Nudd, Editor-in-Chief of Muse by Clio, and thanks for joining us for the story of Got Milk, the beloved California campaign that became a global sensation. Season 1 of Tagline is brought to you by GSTV. For those of you who may not be familiar, there's a good chance you watch GSTV every time you fuel up. GSTV is a national video network that's had incredible growth, now reaching 92 million viewers a month with a unique one-to-one moment of attention. Think about it. What campaign would you run with that moment? On Tagline, we're discussing some of the most memorable spots in history. Imagine how those campaigns, or your next one, could be creatively transformed in context on GSTV. To fuel your next creative campaign, visit gstv.com tagline. By the early 1990s, milk was in trouble. Consumption had been declining worldwide for decades due to the explosion of so many other beverage options. So in 1993, the Dairy Processors of California decided to do something about it. They formed a nonprofit marketing group, the California Milk Processor Board, set aside $20 million a year for marketing, and went looking for an agency who could get Californians to drink milk again. Where they landed, with great fortune as it turned out, was at the San Francisco agency, then known as Goodby, Berlin, and Silverstein, whose co-founder, Jeff Goodby, 
took a good look at all the health-based messaging around milk at the time and immediately knew why it wasn't working. For years, they had used the line, milk does a body good. And they showed like hard body people and uh, people running and then they would drink lots of milk and kids growing up drinking lots of milk and having great bodies and being strong. But when we did research, that that all just seemed like total bullshit to people. <laughs> they were like, that's, that's not the way it works, you know? I mean, nobody does that with milk. Jeff Manning, a longtime commodities marketer, was the head of the milk board. He also knew the milk does a body good approach wasn't working. And he knew why. It wasn't behavior-based. It was kind of intellectual. And of course, as we know now, how many years later, almost 30 years later, that you have to touch people, you have to engage people, and you have to tell them the truth. Because everybody went, yes, you're right, milk's good for you, can I have a Diet Coke? How could they find a better approach? Well, they didn't really know. But the agency's head of planning, an Englishman named John Steele, started doing research. John and his team would eventually land on an insight that remains to this day one of the most famous in advertising history. But it all started much more simply, with something Jeff Manning said in a meeting early on. And, and he said, I've always looked on milk from afar and thought, surely they could do something, they, the milk board, the, whoever, could do something with the association of milk with certain foods. You never consume milk or rarely consume milk on its own. It's always with something else. And it's yeah, that, that might be cereal, it might be coffee, but it also might be brownies and chocolate chip cookies and peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And he said, I'd always imagined a campaign that was, for want of a better phrase, milk and. John was intrigued by milk and, but he soon started to wonder if Manning maybe had it backwards. You don't pour yourself a glass of milk and think, now, what am I going to eat with that? You pour the cereal into the bowl, then you put the milk on it. You decide, I really want to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. What do I drink with that? Well, of course, there's only one real contender. And we said that the, the issue here... And you might not like this as a client, and your clients at the California milk processors might not like it, but the something else is always more interesting than the milk itself. So you say milk and, we say something and milk. John set up focus groups to explore this idea of something and milk. And in a small moment of inspiration that would prove to be critical, he made these people an offer. He'd pay them a slightly higher fee if they agreed not to use any milk for a week beforehand just to see what would happen. That was a technique that I'd learned when I very first trained as a qualitative researcher in my agency in London. I'd never had an opportunity to put that idea into practice. And I I just thought, there's a lot of emotion around milk. Let's just see what happens if it's taken away from people. Because there are certain things in life that you only really appreciate when you don't have it. Turns out people were exasperated, much more than they thought they would be, when they suddenly weren't allowed to use any milk. There was one guy in one group said, he said, you know, this was very, very difficult. And he said, I had this sort of ethical battle with myself. So do I just pour the milk on the cereal and eat it and not tell anyone? Do I come along and admit it as I'm doing now and risk not getting paid the extra $25? And as he was talking about this, there were others in the group who were, were nodding and they the other people sort of chipped in and said, yeah, it's like, it's like those moments where you've run out of milk and you, you go to the refrigerator, you know, having poured the cereal and sliced the fruit, and you pick up the carton. And the carton doesn't weigh quite as much as you'd hoped it would. And you shake it. 
you know, because in shaking it, somehow magically you believe that more milk will appear in the carton than, than, than you know rationally is in there. And all around the room, you could see these people almost sort of picking up imaginary cartons and shaking them and going, oh my God, yeah, that's exactly what you do. Milk suddenly seemed quite important, but only when you didn't have it. And this led John to the third stage of the equation he'd been mulling over. It wasn't just milk and, and it wasn't just something and milk. The real power in the idea would be if we could create a campaign around something and no milk. You use the something to create the appetite for it and the desire for it, and you use the no milk as a way of replicating their fear of running out and getting them to buy more. It came to be known internally at the agency as the deprivation strategy, and they found a fun way of illustrating it. John Butler and Mike Shine, then rising stars in the creative department, who would soon leave to start their own place, Butler, Shine, and Stern, hit a camera at the back of the agency fridge, took away all the milk, and filmed the real reactions of their colleagues at the very moment they realized they wouldn't have any milk for their coffee or cereal. Jeff Goodby recalls this video being both effective and hilarious. And people would open the refrigerator up and like look around for the milk and there's no milk and they'd slam it and walk away. So we had one after another of these people going like, damn it. And there was a terrific video, very, very convincing that people don't like to run out of milk. And it was stunning. Absolutely stunning. I'm completely candid. A really profound observation. It was always there. It's always been there. In a matter of weeks, they discovered the truth about milk, that people couldn't care less about it until they ran out of it. And then they care very much indeed. It was Jeff Goodby, before another client meeting one day, who suddenly articulated the idea in seven letters that would become iconic. Carol Winkler, who was one of the other planners, came to me and said, hey, there's a part of the meeting where we talk about the deprivation strategy, is what we called it. And uh, what should we call that part? And I said, I don't know, why don't you just call it got milk, like with a question mark. And she said, I think it should be called got enough milk, because that would be more exact. And I said, I don't think you need the enough part. I think it's cool just with got milk. I started thinking, that's a good tagline for this. And it's so small that it's almost invisible. I mean, and then that's what kind of makes it hit. It was the beginning of an exciting journey, though it didn't seem that way to everyone, not at first. Next to other Goodby Silverstein clients like Porsche, Norwegian Cruise Lines, and Sega Video Games, milk certainly seemed on the bland side. Still, some of the creators were intrigued, and one of them was Eric Joyner, an art director who years later would found the production company Tool of North America. I remember the day that Jeff Goodby walked down the hall at the agency and said, hey, I think we can do some work for this this milk account. And I remember clearly a lot of the creatives kind of looking around and kind of turning back into their offices or their cubbies and thinking that that won't be a really great creative account to work on. And my whole life, I, I, I think it goes back to my father, is... I always, part of my diet that I loved, I loved milk. And in, in particular, I loved milk and cookies or milk and brownies. And, you know, even after dinner, sitting down oh, with a chocolate chip cookie or a brownie or an Oreo, you know, in front of the TV and a, a nice glass of cold milk, it was always such an enjoyable, nice part of the day for me. And so I was one of the ones that like, oh my gosh, I'd love to do work on that milk account. Eric got paired with a freelance writer named Scott Burns. Scott would go on to great things himself as a Hollywood screenwriter. He wrote The Bourne Ultimatum, The Informant, and Contagion, 
among other films. Scott was invited to work on the Milk account by Rich Silverstein, another of the agency's co-founders. And I said, okay, you, you realize I'm lactose intolerant. And he laughed. But I was like, yeah, sure, I'll come on. And, and he and Goodby had told me that they were a really great client and that this was you know, a big opportunity, which I found kind of funny because I was like, well, how do you get mammals who are adults to drink more milk? We're supposed to maybe not do that when we're adults. Scott came out to San Francisco, spent a bunch of time with John Steele, and ended up getting really interested in the deprivation idea. How unusual that was, selling something through its absence, an approach that really never happened in advertising. And so I had not met a lot of people who did what John did, and I thought it was this incredible mix of anthropology and magic and a bunch of other things. That was always the dream strategy, I think, for a creative person is to have permission to go to a darker place by showing what happens if you don't have the product. So I'd sort of identified a few of these things to do darkly comic explorations of. And, you know, I think the first one that I really committed to script was Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr ended up being the most famous of the launch spots for Got Milk. Indeed, it's one of the best known ads of the 90s. The 60 second spot dramatized this idea of milk deprivation in memorable fashion, telling the story of an eccentric Alexander Hamilton Aaron Burr aficionado who stands to win $10,000 from a radio station if he can answer that day's trivia question, which turns out to be the most perfect question for him. There's one tragic problem, though. He's just taken a huge bite of a peanut butter sandwich, and he can't get the words out. And that was the Vienna Wood Dancing D, one of my all-time favorites. And now, let's make that random call with today's $10,000 question. It's a tough one. Who shot Alexander Hamilton in that famous duel? All right, let's go to the phones and see who's out there. Hello? Hello, for $10,000, who shot... Excuse me? I'm afraid your time is almost up. I'm sorry, maybe next time. Got milk. The spot, which you can see at our website, taglinepodcast.com, was pure Scott Burns, darkly comic with a then obscure reference to a 200-year-old duel that Scott had always been weirdly fascinated by. Although it doesn't seem that obscure now because of Hamilton. I had tried in a lot of my work to kind of have these strange references. Um, there was a campaign I did for a radio station in Chicago called WXRT that had a lot of sort of non sequitur humor in it. And so what I wanted to get at and what I think you know, Michael Bay was able to deliver was the notion that this person's entire life was devoted to this one thing. And in their one shining moment, they're screwed because they don't have any milk. Yes, it was that Michael Bay, later of the Transformers franchise and other Hollywood blockbusters, who directed Aaron Burr and several of the other launch spots. He got involved through Eric Joyner. They'd been at Art Center in Pasadena together a couple of years earlier. Now, Bay hadn't yet made a feature film, but he had done some interesting music videos. And he had shot some ads for Hal Reinium Partners, the San Francisco agency where Jeff Goodby once worked. 
it was a little bit of a leap of faith because, you, you know, you could go with someone more like a Joe Pitka to do this. But I just really thought that, that Michael would bring a really interesting point of view to this. So we, you know, we did a call with him and talked to him and Cindy worked everything out, you know, worked her magic. She had you know, a lot of things to juggle, as all good producers do, to help get us uh, through this. Cindy Epps was the producer on the first several years of Got Milk Work. I was there really at the beginning, which was really fun. And uh, actually, I remember when I saw the first package of scripts that we actually produced, looking at them and thinking, these are like the best scripts I've ever seen in my life as a producer. Yeah. And um, then I got kind of intimidated too. A lot of us that were working during those particular years, it could be, had this feeling of, oh my gosh, I don't know if I'm good enough to do this. You know, they might have made a mistake in hiring me, but no, it was really fun. We all felt like for years, spots that were a little bit more comedic, they didn't look very good filmically. And so we made a conscious decision to make them look good. And that was partly how we ended up with Michael Bay. With Aaron Burr, Michael Bay put his heart and soul into propping that spot. Chuck McBride was another writer on the account. He wrote several of the launch spots and also followed Aaron Burr into production after Scott Burns' freelance gig ended. In the prep calls, Chuck just loved the way Michael Bay was thinking about the work. For me, little intimate scripts like all the ones that we had for, for, for Milk, you could underproduce them and they could be incredibly underwhelming if you're not careful, right? And, the, and so we thought what we could do is bring in a director that just wants scale. Like everything was, you know, everything on, on Michael's reel had these crazy foreshortening angles. You know, I mean, he just, he just really knew how to put together some pretty fascinating frames. He kept on getting, getting making it bigger and bigger. And, that, and that, I really enjoyed that so that he would be in this loft and you wouldn't even know where the walls were. You know what I mean? And then we started joking on the call. It's like, and he could have collected the guns. He'll have the bullet in a glass shell. You know, we just started going off. Michael Bay declined to talk to us for this episode. He rarely acknowledges his old advertising work these days. But by all accounts, he devoted himself to the Aaron Burr spot with a tirelessness and obsessiveness that was admirable. He said it in this weird warehouse <laughs> where this freaky guy was all by himself in this strange apartment that was basically concocted out of bookshelves and he's got a kitchen in the middle of it and the car is parked inside his apartment. And you're like, why does this guy live here? And Michael was like, no, that shows that he is an obsessive weirdo. That's the outward manifestation of it, which was so right and so memorable. Eric and Michael filled the set with props. Bookshelves of Hamilton's writings, replicas of the guns, a replica bullet enshrined in a glass bubble. Foreshadowing his film career, Michael even wanted to blow some shit up to film the guns firing to amp up the drama. Chuck thought that was a great idea. Jeff Manning, not so much. Jeff got really upset. He was like, this is a milk commercial. You can't be shooting guns. You can't use them. You know what I mean? But he was like, that cannot be in the commercial. <laughs> well, we did it anyway. And then Jeff ended up liking it once we put it into the cut because we wanted that moment when, you know, he has the answer. You know what I mean? We wanted that to be like the light bulb in his head going off. Along with the theatrical production choices, they found an offbeat actor as well for the lead role. Sean Whalen, then in his late 20s, was a character actor with a quirky look about him. He had done lots of commercials, but he actually didn't think he'd get this one. He thought he was too young, for one thing. So at the audition, he decided just to have fun with it. So 
when I got the commercial, I was told that when I did my audition, that I had more peanut butter in my mouth than most people in the bread. I just stuffed it in there. And then the other thing was a lot of people, they didn't really have an ending after the phone call ends, right? So they said, you know, just play with it, what you want to do. And I guess a lot of people got really angry and threw things and, you know, got mad and pounded the phone. and, And I was the only guy to get really sad as if, oh, that my whole life led to this and I blew it, you know? Uh, so, th- so then when I got to the shoot, uh, Michael Bay walked up to me and just said, do what you did in the audition and we'll cover it. The Aaron Burr shoot ended up being a single 12 hour day. Now, as you can imagine, taking a giant bite of peanut butter sandwich, take after take, hour after hour, required a fair amount of stamina from Sean, not to mention a whole team of wranglers helping him out. So I would finish a take, four people would run up. The first person had a bucket and I spit the peanut butter out into the bucket. And the second one gave me water and I rinsed and swished around and spit that in the bucket. The third person had Q-tips and wet Q-tips and would make sure that there was no peanut butter in my teeth and go all the way around my teeth and my lips and then would wipe off my face, make sure I had nothing on my face. And then the last person handed me a new peanut butter sandwich and we'd go right again. Just go, 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 go. We just kept going. And then at the end, I had, because of the oil and the salt, had a lot of canker sores, very dry chapped lips, and I could not eat peanut butter for like three to five years. After that, I've been eating almond butter ever since. The spot did change Sean's life in more positive ways, which we'll get to a bit later. And his casting did set the tone for the kinds of actors who would appear in Got Milk Spots for years to come. We wanted people that had bulging eyes and, you know, kind of weird faces so that they became a much more, like you said, a bit of a cartoon. We wanted you to see the character and immediately know if something funny was coming by the way we dressed them, by the way we, you know, the hair and makeup, everything was just a little over the top. And we pushed them hard. And even Michael was kind of like, kind of going like, are you sure you guys want to go this far? Because this is like freaks and geeks kind of stuff. And it was like, yeah, we wanted to go that far. The visual look of Aaron Burr with the extreme close-ups and the funky camera angles is pretty dated now, but it was exciting and new at the time. Among the cameras that Bay and his DP, Mark Plummer, used was a remote control periscope device called a Kenworthy Snorkel, which allowed them to get some pretty unique angles, including the famous shot of Sean shaking the milk carton as seen through the empty drinking glass which looks huge in the foreground. And it's like you have this perspective, like you're an inch tall standing on that table behind that glass, looking through that glass to our character who then all of a sudden gets this look on his face like, oh my God, (laughs) this is the absolute worst time to run out of milk. Some tensions did arise at the very end of the shoot day. Bay still needed to get footage of the guns firing, which Eric thought was a bit silly. Eric really wanted a close-up of Burr's name, the answer to the trivia question on an oil painting that Bay had actually had custom made for the commercial. We end up shooting a couple of takes on the musket going off, and Michael was happy, and I was kind of like, okay. (laughs) And so it gets to the last shot now of the night, at which I said, Michael, I really need that tight shot. And Michael's like, oh, Eric, you don't need that. We see it in the background behind him, you know, all this stuff. And I was like, I'm not leaving the set until we get this. We have to get this. It was back in the days of film. And I remember this like it was yesterday. 
he does one take of it just to kind of <laughs> uh, go, hey, I got it. I got your shot. And what happened is at the, right at the end of the take, so he rolls a little bit of film, the camera gets up to speed, and I'm standing right next to him, next to the dolly. And he tips down to the name, Burr, and I can hear it in the mag roll out. Click, 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 click. It goes around. And I go, Michael, it just rolled out. He goes, we got it, Eric. We got it. I was down on that name. We got it. And I was like, Michael, I, I don't know if we, do we really get it? Eric would have to wait until the edit weeks later to find out if they got the shot. It took Tom Muldoon, the editor, the better part of two weeks to cut the first round of spots in L.A. Eventually, when the edits were done, Jeff Goodby flew in from San Francisco to take a look. This was before you could just email stuff around. For Eric, this was always a pretty stressful part of the process. And the thing about Jeff and Rich for me at that point in my life, my career, I mean, these guys were like, I looked up to these guys incredibly. They had done a body of work like no other at the time. And I really just um, had so much respect for Jeff and, and Rich. He watched the edit and he really didn't say anything. And I was kind of like, uh-oh. Like, you know, but, but I knew in my heart, I knew it wasn't wildly off. I'm watching Jeff's face out of the corner of my eye. And so I think after the third time or so, Jeff was like, I think we're good. And I, I, I was like, what? Not a single change? I, I didn't say that to him, but I was like, oh, my God. I've worked for you for years on print, on uh, TV commercials. I had never experienced so like, I think we're good. Basically, he's saying, it's great. Don't change the thing. This may not be true, but this is the way I remember it. I looked at it and went, I, I think it's done. I don't think I would change a single thing. So I don't, I don't think that a single frame changed after Muldoon edited the spot. It was perfect. A few other production notes. Rob Paulson did the voice of the radio announcer. The classical music at the beginning is an original composition, completely made up. There is no Vienna wood dance in D. And then, of course, there's the famous Got Milk logo type at the end, set in an old font from the 1930s called Phoenix American, as well as the voiceover of the Got Milk line, which a voice actor named Denny Delk did, giving those two words more texture than you'd really think possible. I think that Joe Shans or, or Eric Joyner, who were the art directors working on Got Milk said it originally in Helvetica and Silverstein saw it and was like, that it's like nothing. It's got to have a personality. Come on. I, I actually thought it looked a, a little too logo-y at first. And, and you know, I, I think I resisted it a bit, but it turned out to be a great idea. And then the clients watched the rough cut and one of the, one of the guys on the board was like, why didn't somebody say Got Milk? <laughs> And I'm like, oh, fuck, this is terrible. No, it's going to be awful. No, you don't. It's subtle. It's little. That's what's cool about it. That's what's hip. And, and they said, no, we want to hear it. I'm like, okay, fine. So, so I, can rem I can remember we, we, uh, we cast Denny Delk to do it. And I, I was so upset about having to voice this thing that I sent McBride over to record it. <laughs> and when, when Chuck came back, I said, I said, it's going to be awful. It's going to be awful. And he said, no, actually, it's going to be kind of cool. He, he did it with a little bit of attitude. You know, it might be okay. <laughs> and, and so we put him on there, and uh, he was awesome. 
And of course, he collected royalties for those two words for like, you know, six or eight years. Eric was also relieved to see that they did get the shot of Burr's name, although the film had rolled out, which created flashes of white in the resulting footage where it had been exposed. You can see this clearly in the finished spot. And to this day, I get asked about that. And they think it's like, oh, my God, Eric, that was so brilliant to have this art direction. When you go down to the name, that there's flashes of white when you're reading the name to get your attention more. And I have to tell everyone that asked me, I said, that is not that was not brilliant art direction. That was literally the film rolling out in the mag and being exposed. And I'll never forget going to the Cleos. They were in San Francisco and Chuck and Eric and I standing in the back of the uh, auditorium waiting to walk down and they played that spot. And all I could think of when that shot played is it's, that's the only shot we have. At <laughs> Aaron Burr debuted on TV in October, 1993. It went on to win best of show for TV commercials at the Cleos the following June. But of course, this was just the beginning. After the break, we'll look at how the campaign evolved over the next few years, including its famous partnerships with other brands, the Milk Board's response to what became an endless parade of parodies, how the Got Milk line went national, and how the account became a treasured creative showcase inside Goodby Silverstein for writers and art directors looking to make their mark at the hottest agency in the country. Once again, thanks to our sponsor of today's episode, GSTV. Readers of Muse by Clio may remember that Tombris and their client Moonpie aired a fun and memorable spot for the Super Bowl, featuring the wonderful and quirky Moonpie Child. That spot wasn't on television, but on GSTV, and created completely with the context in mind. While an unusual choice, it makes complete sense considering GSTV is a national video network just steps away from where Moonpies are sold. Could GSTV fuel your next creative campaign? To get started, visit gstv.com slash tagline. Upon their release in the fall of 1993, Aaron Burr and the rest of the Got Milk launch spots were an immediate hit with viewers. The deprivation strategy turned out to be a fun and compelling one to illustrate, and within a year, the offbeat ads and the instantly memorable tagline quickly gathered speed in pop culture nationwide. As John Steele recalls, this was particularly wild since the campaign was only running in California. All of the screenwriters who were based in Los Angeles started writing Got Milk jokes into sitcoms. So there were Got Milk jokes in Seinfeld and Friends and um, Frasier and all the, the Mad About You, all the top sitcoms of the time, which I'm not sure what they would have meant to anybody in the rest of the country. All of which was a relief, quite honestly. For all the promise of its great insight, the campaign was never guaranteed to connect, what with its dark humor, strange characters, and exaggerated visual language that people weren't used to. In selling the absence of a product, it was almost anti-advertising. But for writers like Chuck McBride, it was a godsend. As the campaign gained popularity, they got to come up with more joyfully bleak, dystopic scripts. Really a writer's dream. And Goodby and I joked about this. It was just, you know, doing uh, snuff films. Everybody was going to get screwed. We're just writing a milk snuff film. They're going to eat something and they're going to get screwed. (laughs) What's great about it is you didn't need to write the conclusion. You just got people to the to the point of conflict, and then you got out. You didn't have to do a full three act. You know what I mean? You just, you get them to the tension, and then you you put that logo up. And so it made that perfect commercial format because you didn't need it to resolve. In fact, in many cases, you didn't, you wanted to leave everybody a little bit in the lurch. There are lots of memorable ads from this time. One that Jeff Goodby directed called Heaven showed an angry jerk of a businessman who dies in a freak accident 
and goes to what looks like heaven, with giant cookies everywhere and a huge fridge full of milk. But he soon finds out all the milk cartons are empty. Wait a minute. Where am I? Got milk. So it was an interesting thing. He had to be a jerk. He's on the phone firing somebody at the beginning of the commercial, and then he gets hit by this truck and he goes to heaven. And, you know, and he still has to be a little bit of a jerk and you don't root for him. But then in the end, you kind of have to feel sorry for him because he gets stuck in hell. Well, I said, yeah, wait a minute. You know who would be a really great jerk is Michael Bay. So I had him come in and read for the part. <laughs> you won't mind me saying this. I had him come in and read for the part. And he was like such a jerk that you could not overcome it at the end of the spot. <laughs> you just were like, that guy deserves to be in hell, damn it. That, that audition tape must exist somewhere. It'd be really funny to see it now. Harry Cacciolo wrote The Heaven Spot and a bunch of others. He says the ads were so much fun to write, coming up with outlandish ways to torture the characters to comic effect. I have a friend that says anytime something bad happens to someone else, it's funny. And it's very, you know, it's very true because you see somebody slip, you're kind of glad it's not you, so you laugh. There's one called interrogation, which I really like. It's a very simple little scene about two cops interrogating a guy and kind of torturing him with this cupcake and no milk to get him to talk. And, um, and there's a bunch of them. And the most fun of this campaign was just that everyone was a little movie. You know, even though it's a campaign, every execution, individual execution is a concept all its own, a story all its own. Chuck wrote a spot where a priest gets a cupcake out of a vending machine but he can't get a carton of milk out, so he starts beating up the vending machine, to the horror of some nuns watching nearby. That one certainly got noticed. The Catholic diocese called us and, and we wanted to boycott milk. It was great. Like We had ourselves this thing where if we put the right pieces together, people paid attention. Another famous spot later on, directed by No Murrow, was called Birthday, where a creepy clairvoyant kid, like Damien from The Omen, keeps predicting bad things that soon come true. At the end, he warns a bunch of kids at a birthday party not to eat the cake. Seconds before mom, in a panic, runs in shaking an empty carton of milk. Against all odds, Got Milk would become the campaign everyone at the agency wanted to work on. And among the teams who really left their mark on it was the writer-art director pair of Blake Kelly and Amy Nicholson, who would take the work in a number of new directions. Blake, who started out as a receptionist at the agency, recalls how they really kind of went gonzo with it at first. So I have this thing where, like, no matter what I'm working on, I always get really passionate about it. So... If I, you know, if I'm working on beer, it's like, oh, let's get a beer right now. So when we were working on it every day for lunch, we would walk down to the grocery store and Amy would get like a vegan bread loaf or some wonderful thing. And I would get chocolate, chocolate chip muffins and just, <sighs> I craved sweets the whole time we were working on that account. Cause it was really all that you were thinking of is what kind of food can we put in someone's mouth? Amy arrived in 96 and recalls the really high expectations on the account by that point. What you don't want to do is ruin somebody else's amazing campaign. (laughs) 
So your first instinct is do no harm, but then you had to also make a great spot because that was just the level of work that everybody at the agency was working at was, is it amazing? Is it funny? Does it move people? And then for milk, you had this extra added layer of, does it live up to the genius of the spots that have come before? You wanted other creatives to be jealous of you. And so milk was sort of the ultimate test of that. Amy and I came up with one once and we could never get anyone to buy it, but it was, um, God, I can't remember how it went, but it was like basically just like a Barbie, you know, like a little, how little girls play with Barbies. We wanted to have her go over to Ken's house to ask to borrow milk, you know, Hey, and he didn't have any. And then the whole end of it was them just making out, which is what little girls do with Barbie. (laughs) For some reason, Amy and I thought that was hysterical. Another of their ideas kept getting rejected as well. What we wanted to do was feed a dog peanut butter. Because when dogs eat peanut butter, it takes a really long time for them to get the peanut butter off the roof of their mouth. And it just goes on forever. And Jeff Goodby had volunteered his dog. (laughs) So Blake and I went and picked up our boss's dog (laughs) on the morning of the shoot. And the dog was great, but the dog couldn't sit still long enough for us to shoot it. So we thought, oh, we're going to be fired because we're not using Jeff Goodby's dog. And (laughs) so we took Jeff Goodby's dog back home (laughs) and there was a woman on the set. I don't know what she was doing hair or she was script supervisor or something. And she said, oh, I have a dog named Tater. It's a big, fat, yellow lab. And she loves peanut butter. And we said, well, will she sit still? And she said she won't move as long as the peanut butter is in front of her. So she went and got her dog, Tater. And Tater ended up to be the dog in the spot. And then once clients saw the spot, they bought it. They bought it because they loved it, you know. So, yeah, that was a big coup for us because we loved that script so much. And it was really hard to sell. They also worked on a Got Milk campaign aimed at children. This was during a brief period when Goodby Silverstein did spots for the National Milk Board, known as Milk Pep. More on them in a bit. We really didn't know what to do, so we kind of made up a little assignment for someone in the agency whose spouse was a teacher. And she gave to her class a little essay assignment. What does it mean to be without milk? Or tell us a story about not being without milk. What we got back was insane and great. And so we took what they wrote and we put it into 30-second scripts. Return of the Milkman by Matthew Anderson, age nine. It was a dark and stormy night. A milkman's car fell off the road. Forty years later, he rose from the dead screaming, Milk! He walked to the store. He walked to the dairy aisle. He took the milk. Two days later, he went to the market when it was open. He went to the service counter. He said, Do you give free refills? Rich Silverstein will still say that campaign made no sense. But to kids, it made a lot of sense. And it was really, really fun. But it was completely sideways from what the regular campaign did. One other campaign they did in the 90s, which also broke out of the traditional got milk mold, was called Town Without Milk. This one started out as a radio campaign. I think what happened, I was a really junior writer. Nobody wanted to write the radio. So they let me try writing some radio scripts. 
And I wrote one batch that was the traditional, put something in your mouth and then you need milk. And then Goodby encouraged me to try something different. And so I wrote this radio campaign that was about a town with no milk. It's been a sad week here in the town without milk. What with Jeff Becker, our star quarterback, moping around. Jeff's been dating a girl from the next town over, a town that has milk. She was used to sturdy milk-drinking boys. Jeff was kind of, well, scrawny. Out most of the season with a sprained ankle, he got putting his car in gear. And people talked, said Jeff was using her to get some milk on a cereal. You know, something to dip his cookies into. Then one day she came to the mall wearing a milk mustache. Jeff couldn't take it anymore. When a have meets a have not, love is supposed to triumph. But that's not the way it is here. Do you love someone? Make sure they have milk before it's too late. Got milk? I mean, I think I kind of loosely based it on Lake Wobegon type thing, Garrison Keeler, but it was just this narrator who told stories about this town where they had no milk and all the bad things that happened because of it. The radio was so strong that Jeff Goodby asked them to turn it into a TV campaign, which included this spot called Ballad from 97. Oh, mama, oh, papa, I'm feeling so down. How can it be there's no milk in this town? Don't give me no baked goods until things get better. My cornflakes are cardboard, cake tastes like a sweater. I'd give anything for that glass of white soup. I'm living my life in this town without milk. And we had so much fun with that. We made it really depressing. (laughs) The town is destitute because (laughs) there's no milk. And of course, I had done these mood boards that were all of these, you know, dust bowl photos from, you know, from like these black and white, severe dust bowl photos. And people in the focus groups just thought they've lost their mind and Goodby shot the campaign for us, which was great. It's always a treat when your boss gets behind something so much that they want to shoot it. It's not as iconic as the first thing, but I just remember people being like, why do they get to do something different? (laughs) People were mad that we got to, you know, stop stuffing brownies into people's faces for five minutes. Two critical decisions on the client side also helped the campaign flourish in its early years. The first was the Milk Board's response to all the Got Milk parodies that began cropping up everywhere soon after the campaign got popular. I went to school one day. I was dropping my daughter off and they had a bake sale set up and somebody had written like Got Cake or something like that. And it was the first time anybody that I had ever seen did that, ripped off the line. And one of the moms came over and said, is it okay if we use your Got Milk line like this? And so I said to Jeff, you know, people are ripping this line off. You know, you see it all over the place. And I said, you should get a lawyer like to stop this. It's bad. And he said, you know what? We don't have the money for a lawyer. And I actually think it's cool. And the board's reaction was, of course, let's sue those guys, right? I mean, we're going to put them out of business. But it was silly stuff. Actually, there's a very large company now called Got Junk, that junk pickup. So it wasn't, they weren't hurting us any. It was in principle a trademark infringement. 
but there were so many suddenly. It was like everywhere from your local paper to national campaigns. And of course, we, you know, we talked to an attorney and they said, well, yeah, you could go after them, but you can't own got blank. You own got milk. And the only two that we ever, I think, sent letters to were got beer because it was in our, a beverage category. And uh, one other soft drink did a got something, you know, soft drink. So the got ripped off part of it really benefited us enormously. And I think if anything made us iconic. The other key decision was to invite other brands, the makers of the companion foods, into the Got Milk universe. This led to a ton of co-branded work that was in a way even more delightful to consumers who always seem to love when brands work together. This was also something that never could have happened under the old milk does a body good strategy. In the past, the dairy industry wouldn't go near Nabisco because they who knew what the filling to Oreos was, right? It was pretty interesting to go visit Big G in, in Minneapolis and Kellogg's, Quaker, all the cookie companies, Nabisco, went to Nestle because of Nesquik. And it was a very simple presentation. I mean, we walked in and said, you guys, Big G, you're critical to us, right? The cereal you sell sells our milk and we need you. And how can we work together? At that point, we had absolutely no idea the response we were going to get. I mean, I could have been kicked out of a bunch of rooms. And instead they said, well, we love it. And by the way, I don't know if you remember that Oreos were repositioned six years later, seven years later, literally as milk's favorite cookie. Well, so now they're looking at putting got milk on a cookie package that has 70% awareness nationally. We never asked for a penny, ever asked for a penny. And I don't know if you could calculate. I mean, how do you calculate the value of got milk, the whole proposition, your campaign on 50 million packages of Oreos? You know, it was like mana from heaven. At one point, Manning asked Nabisco if he could take an existing Oreo commercial featuring two brothers battling over milk and cookies and make it a got milk commercial. And all we want to do at the end is put got milk. And they said, sure, if you want to run our work, it's fine with us. Million dollar spot, whatever it costs them to produce it. And, um, you know, stick your brand name at the end of it. Another partnership was even more unlikely. A billboard that would itself become iconic, showing Cookie Monster from Sesame Street sitting sadly at a table, surrounded by cookies he's not eating because he doesn't have any milk. The only text is the Got Milk logo. Blake Kelly actually created that one with art director Val Ang Chamorro, Blake recalls taking it in to show Jeff Goodby. I don't think he expected much from us at all because we were like the little kid creative team. But he like looked at the Cookie Monster and he was like, it's pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, I think originally when we did it, we had, she, we had dr- drawn it two ways. One was just him bummed out with the cookies. And then the other way, he had a carrot. And Goodby is like, the carrot's too much. It should just be the cookies. Children's Television Workshop partnering with any brand was just unheard of. But they were swayed when Manning played up the health benefits of milk compared to soda and other drinks. In the end, these partnerships really boosted the energy and creativity of the Got Milk campaign, giving the art directors and writers more visual assets to play with and more stories to tell. Harry Cocciolo and Chuck McBride both recall how fun it was working with General Mills on commercials around this time. My partner and I worked on the the Tricks Rabbit. Several teams passed on that because they didn't want to deal with General Mills. They thought that's going to be a nightmare. 
And, you know, it's just, it was just a, it's a, it's probably the most fun I've ever had as a creative because it was so wide open. I did one with the raisin brand, the California raisin, you know, standing on the side of a cereal bowl with a little rubber ducky looking really forlorn because there's no milk in there. So it actually became fun. It, we, we started playing around with other brands and, and they got into the mix too. So, so it looked like our work was, was seeping more and more into to popular culture. The rest of the dairy industry soon came calling as well. And again, Jeff Manning was totally open to collaborating. The National Milk Board, known as Milk Pep, agreed to pay $2 million a year every year, a million dollars a word, to use the Got Milk line and logo. They went on to create the famous Milk Mustache print ads with the agency Bozell, featuring celebrities photographed by Annie Leibovitz. Milk Pep spent upwards of $100 million on their campaign every year, a staggering amount compared to the California spend of about $20 million. So by the time we got to 96, awareness of Got Milk in California was high 90s. I mean, you had to be basically brain dead not to have seen Got Milk. But nationally, it was way up there in the 70s because of Milk Pep, primarily. But also because as you drove around every town in America, there was Got Milk on a, on a milk truck. For Jeff Goodby, the meteoric rise of this line he'd written was pretty crazy to watch even if it did mean he had to watch other agencies go off and do their own interpretations of it. And I was always trying to get paid for <laughs> the two words. Every year, you guys get two million bucks for these two words, and we don't get any of it. <laughs> and he never, he never let me have it. It's fine. But he made a remarkably smart decision. But what about sales? Did Got Milk actually turn things around for the California dairy industry? Well, yes and no. Here's how Manning frames the question of Got Milk's effectiveness. In one respect, the campaign failed badly. And that is that before Got Milk, per capita consumption of milk in California, and I'm talking primarily white milk, I mean, 99% white milk, was going down at a percent a year, 2% a year, every year, and nationally at about the rate, same rate. It continued to go down pretty much every year in California, even after Got Milk. But the difference between the rate of decline in California versus the rest of the country was dramatic. And the difference between those two was the return on investment. There was about a five or six times return on the dollars we spent. So, you know, it failed, we didn't turn it around, but we flattened it out. Frankly, white milk is gonna become, in my opinion, is gonna become a child's product primarily, kids under eight, and cereal. Those two things are going to be what's left of the milk business, I believe, someday. Jeff Goodby certainly sees the sales numbers as a win. At the same time, he also believes milk will probably never recapture its former central place in most people's lives. Hispanic community uses a lot of milk. They still do. They drink about three times as much per capita as the rest of the population. And um, so we advertise more aggressively to Spanish speakers in Hispanics in the U.S. And um, nothing really stopped that slide, you know, and it still, it hasn't stopped to this day. It's a product whose window of opportunity is just closed little by little. Still, Got Milk soldiered on. The deprivation strategy was used for a dozen years until 2005, and we could do a whole other episode on how the campaign evolved after that. The embrace of nutrition once again, after the growing backlash against unhealthy foods as well as many campaigns like Get the Glass, White Gold, Milkarious, and Mutopia. The Milk Mustache campaign alone lasted almost 20 years, 
from 95 until 2014, and MilkPep actually brought back the Got Milk line in 2020 in a TikTok campaign for Gen Z after seeing milk sales rise during COVID for the first time in decades. Meanwhile, the original California campaign is still running, although Goodby Silverstein did say goodbye to the account in 2018 after a quarter century of work. Today, nearly 30 years after launch, it's fun to look back and see not only the long shadow cast by the creative work, but also how it changed the lives and careers of those who worked on it. Perhaps none more so than Sean Whalen, who found himself a sudden celebrity after the runaway success of Aaron Burr. Instantly, I couldn't walk anyway. I lived in Brentwood, and man, I would get hassled all the time. I mean, all the time. Just people saying, Aaron Burr, and one guy came up in my face and said, why didn't you spit it out? Why didn't you spit it out? And I was like, it's a commercial. It's not a real thing, you know? And then the funniest thing was I was on La Cienega Avenue in Los Angeles, and I remember a guy pulling up next to me. He goes, hey, hey, and he's pointing at me, and I rolled down, and I'm like saying, hey, and he goes, Raymond Burr, Raymond Burr. And I thought, and I said, oh, that's such a funny story. Like, I can't wait to tell that. And then it was almost like he opened a floodgate because everyone after that said Raymond Burr. No one got it right. They'd all come up to me and go, Raymond Burr, Raymond Burr. It was so weird. It was great because I was sitting in an acting class and a woman, one of the young actress women came over to me and said, uh, I think your life's about to change. And I said, why? She goes, I work at Amblin Entertainment. And I said, okay. And she goes, that's Steven Spielberg's company? And I go, yeah. She goes, Steven loves that commercial. So I was cast in Twister in 95. I killed my commercial career, but it started my theatrical career. And it all started because of that commercial. The campaign also followed Scott Burns around, even though he left advertising to become a filmmaker not too long after writing Aaron Burr. Scott produced Al Gore's climate change film, An Inconvenient Truth, and he recalls with some embarrassment how Al introduced him to the Nordic royals while accepting the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007. And Al said, and this is Scott Burns, one of our producers, he came up with Got Milk. I just found it amazing that even sitting there in that moment discussing climate change, this ad campaign that I had done was more interesting and intriguing to people or more, you know, more famous than, you know, the vice president of the United States who had just won a Nobel Peace Prize. It's definitely a lesson that has stuck with me, whether it's that or the Nike swoosh, that storytelling that we can do around that iconography really has a lasting, lasting impact. That that simple story so elegantly photographed about something so basic became so profoundly lasting. A lot of the folks I spoke to remarked on the magic of Goodby Silverstein in the 90s, truly one of the great golden ages any agency's ever seen. Blake Kelly and Amy Nicholson also just see the 90s generally as a time of remarkable storytelling and advertising that entertained, but also really changed the fortunes of so many brands. I feel like in that little window of time, it was so about making something just that people wanted to watch. Like, I feel like when those came on, people wanted to watch those ads. They were like little movies. They were so fun and things have changed. You know, budgets have gone down and and there's more like branding and neuroscience. And I guess to me, the lesson of that is if you can take a really simple, true thing and make it fun, people will like it. Sometimes strategies now are so complicated and 
10 sentences long and they try to include everything in them. And that was just such a simple insight. And then it was just really playfully executed. And there were many campaigns that came out of Goodby at that time. Um, E-Trade, amazing, so funny, but also made E-Trade famous, you know? So, yeah, so, um, and convinced people to go trade online, which at the time was not something anybody did. So there was a lot of selling in what seems like silly, entertaining, fun, you know, punchy tagline, but there was a lot of real hardcore selling in it. John Steele says it was many ingredients that combined in just the right way on Got Milk. It's a classic insight in that it feels so familiar, but you'd never thought of it that way before. But that great insight wouldn't have meant anything had Scott not been able to write those pieces about Aaron Burr or, or the guy stealing milk from his baby. And without that line, that line was as, as powerful a um, lightning rod as I've seen in a campaign. But it all started with a client who wanted to change behavior. I mean, when you compare it to the way a lot of campaigns are are created these days, where everybody seems happy if they get, you know, a few retweets and and likes and sharing on social media. Well, who cares about that? What what you should be caring about is is what your client's paying the money for, which is to sell sell product. And speaking of, Jeff Manning certainly had a wild ride with Got Milk from 1993 until he stepped back in 2005. He ended up writing a whole book about the campaign, and to this day, you can find him online at gotmanning.com. Great work rarely happens, of course, without a client committed to great creative, built on great strategy. And Manning certainly demanded both. Well, the first that comes up for me is that the client, the board, and the agency need to have complete trust in each other and believe in each other and respect each other. I think the second is be strategic. You knew I was going to say that. Develop a strategy that doesn't come from what you want to say, but comes from truth. It wasn't milk is good for you. That's what I want to say as a farmer. It's don't run out of milk, which is the truth. And and then I guess the third is during good times and bad, don't change the strategy and don't change the tagline just because it's been running five years. Find other ways of expressing it. Express it in uh, digital terms if you want. Express it in other creative terms. Stop advertising and use PR. All of that you can do, but don't just change the basic strategy unless there's a reason to change the strategy and don't change the tagline. Eric Joyner, one of the first creatives to work on the account, has a bunch of great Got Milk stories. Here's one about winning Best of Show at the 1994 Clio's for Aaron Burr. I am the son of a basically a madman. I, my father worked in New York City on Madison Avenue in the 1950s, but he just always followed my career, and so did my mother. And so once I won that Clio, and for my father, a, a Clio was like better than a, a Pulitzer Prize. You know, it was he was like. Oh my gosh. And I, and I had one other Cleo's before that even, but to win best of show. And I remember coming home to my parents' house where I grew up in Redondo beach. And and after I'd won and, and I actually brought that Cleo down from San Francisco with me on a trip afterwards. And I gave it to my dad and mom and my dad, it, he's no longer with us now. My mom's still around. 
but he put that up like on the centerpiece, you know, in their, their front room. And that still to this day in my mom's house, that is still sitting. It's the one award. And I have, like I said, I have gold lions. I have, I have the Palm d'Or from Cannes for the best production company in the world. But that Cleo, that uh, best of show Cleo for Aaron Burr made him. And, and I would even hear from family friends. Oh, I went over to your dad's, you know, to see your dad. I, I haven't been in town. And, you know, he, he shows me <laughs> the Cleo that you had won for Aaron Burr really brought so much joy, not only into my life, but it might made my father so proud. Creatively, Eric sees the campaign as just a pure distillation of a core truth, entertainingly expressed. I can't eat an Oreo without milk. And so I knew that that the story was based on an inherent truth. And I do think that um, that kind of having that truth in your story, even if you're kind of playing with the truth or mocking the truth or going opposite of the truth, is that that truth is still there. Advertising at its best does become entertainment. We see this on the internet, on YouTube today. You'll get a millions of views for, for literally a branded commercial. And, and I'll bet you 90% of those, it's not because they, they want to really find out about that product. It's because that commercial is entertaining. There's something funny or heartfelt or relevant, and it, it is actually entertaining to watch. For Jeff Goodby, who's done 40 years of classic advertising, it's humbling and perhaps a little galling to look back at the one campaign that in some ways has overshadowed all the others. It's the most famous thing that we've ever done, for sure. I can tell people that we did the Budweiser lizards and the little donkey that wanted to be Clydesdale and and the monkey for E-Trade and all these other things that we've done. And and when you get to Got Milk, they go, oh, yeah, yeah, that. That, that's cool. <laughs> You're like, hey, we did all this other stuff. <laughs> I think what Got Milk taught me was two things. One is that it's great to have a campaign so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel every time you do something new. It was a great recruiting tool for me to have the Got Milk campaign. I think also that uh, it shows you that people, consumers, people on the other end of these these messages we sometimes treat them like idiots. And and I think the Got Milk campaign said, no, we can do things that are pretty smart. We can presume that they'll understand something about Aaron Burr and, and Alexander Hamilton. You know, we can make a joke about a guy who's inside a full body cast and a little girl comes over and puts a cookie in his mouth and he's stuck inside this full body cast without milk. These were pretty edgy jokes. They presumed a certain intelligence on the part of the people on the other side. And that's what I think great advertising always does. Great advertising also, once in a while, when the stars align, breaks through and becomes a part of pop culture. Something Got Milk certainly did, as Eric and Jeff both realized in amusing fashion one afternoon in the mid-90s as they took a drive together to visit another client. The world started to like pick up on it, the Got Milk thing, and it was very memorable. And I remember driving Jeff Goodby down to our Sega client in South San Francisco, and then we were going through the Tenderloin neighborhood in San Francisco, and we look out the window of the car that we're in, and there was a porn shop. And in the window of the porn shop, there was a poster, and it said, Got Porn, with a question mark. <laughs> and we all... I just 
chuckled. And I remember Jeff going, well, I guess we've made it. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> You've been listening to Tagline, the show about great ads and the people who make them. Thanks to my guests this week, Jeff Goodby, Jeff Manning, John Steele, Cindy Epps, Eric Joyner, Scott Burns, Blake Kelly, Amy Nicholson, Chuck McBride, Erica Cholo, and Sean Whalen. Tagline is a production of Muse by Clio, the content division of the Clio Awards. This week's episode was produced by Carly Angeloni and edited by Lane McGibbony. Our designer is Ashley Epping, Our theme music is by Brian Englishman. Special thanks to the creative agency Gut and the PR agency Raven for helping us promote the show. And thank you as well to our sponsor, GSTV. For more about Tagline and to watch the ads we talk about on every episode, visit taglinepodcast.com or musebyclio.com. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to listen. I'm Tim Nudd. Thanks for joining us. And we'll be back next week with another new episode of Tagline. This episode of Tagline was brought to you by GSTV. Every day, millions of Americans get in their vehicles and go. Fueling drives commutes, commerce, and connection. And that's when GSTV has the undivided attention of one in three adults every month. GSTV's national video network owns a unique moment for innovative storytelling when consumers are engaged taking action today, and influence for tomorrow. Fuel your next creative campaign with GSTV. To get started, visit gstv.com slash tagline.